0: As you sit at home and you're watching the news on on TV, or you listen to people talk about the place of Christianity in British society, do you ever ask yourselves, what is God doing in the nation? What is He doing? Why does the church seem so weak? Why and where is justice for God's people? Why do I ask those questions? Do you ask those questions? What's the problem? Well, I think as we observe the the nation and the church in recent years and decades, we can see that numbers of people attending church have decreased and are decreasing. People are losing interest in going to church. Dan, last year in his sermon series, used a phrase, uh, used a quote, the church is never more than one generation away from extinction. No wonder is that more true now than it has ever been in the UK. Not only do people no longer go to church, but people are simply turning away from any kind of Christian, biblical worldview and beliefs and moral system. No longer do people believe that there's a God who created the universe. People don't believe that there is a set right and wrong, but it's up to culture and society to decide on what is right and wrong, who we are and how we should live. We have Christians taken to court Fighting for the freedom of religion, while the world says it's fighting for the freedom from discrimination. Churches and CUs and Christian groups do mission and they proclaim the gospel, but converts trickle in. Most remain hard hearted to the gospel and have their intellectual objections. Members compromise immorality and it's becoming more and more accepted in the church. The numbers of those getting divorced. In the church, is equal to those getting divorced outside the church. People's belief and practice of sexuality is stirred from biblical truth. And sin is just tolerated. And we look like the world around us. Some churches may be teaching. Teaching has drifted from the Bible. They've watered down the gospel. They present a message that's nice and won't offend people. They talk about a Jesus only who loves rather than a Jesus who judges. Going to church has become more about me and my felt needs and my desires. So I go to church when I want to and I do what I want to and I give a little bit but not much of myself and of my time and of my money. And I wonder whether that desire for, for comfort and for possessions and a nice life is Has sucked the spiritual life out of many Christians. There's no longer a dependence upon God because we seem to have everything we need and life is fine. So we don't pray, we pray very little. Corporate prayer meetings are pitifully attended. People don't read their Bibles and so they don't know a lot about God. Is that fair? Do you see that in the church in the UK? Do you see it in modern Road Church in any way? Do you see it in your own hearts? Do I see it in my heart? What is the future of the Western church? Think of its history, its evangelistic success, its missionary endeavour, its social justice. If all of that is now forgotten, and modern civilised society says it's all due to the advancement of culture, rather than being built on good Christian principles, a nation where people used to send missionaries out to the world, but now the world seems to think needs some missionaries back to the West, what is God doing in the church? Why doesn't he save the church? Why doesn't he bring another revival? Surely we are Jew, another one. It's been over a hundred years. Well, as we look at this prophecy of Habakkuk, we'll see that he too was a man faced with a similar situation, a lot worse situation, as he witnessed the health of the church where he was deteriorate rapidly. And, and he asked God for help. He asked God to come and save, to come and have justice. To come and free those who are righteous. So my prayer this evening. And my prayer for the weeks to come. Is as we read Habakkuk. As we hear this prophecy. That we'll see that God does know. God does act. But that God acts according to his will. According to his purposes. In his way and in his time. For his glory. He acts. Both To judge and to save. So our question, as we question justice, our question this evening is, how is God going to deal with the problem of sin?
1: How does God deal
0: with the problem of sin? <coughs> All we know about this man Habakkuk is from this book. We know nothing else. He's not mentioned anywhere else in the Old Testament, and so we have to glean our information from here. First thing, he makes it easy, is he's a prophet. Verse 1 tells us so. The Prophecy that Habakkuk, the prophet, received. But everything else we must discern from his words and from his dialogue that he has with God. But you can be sure that Habakkuk is he's one of the, the good guys. He's seeking to live a righteous life, to obey God's law, to, to speak on God's behalf amidst those who, who just aren't. And, and he's unhappy. <laughs> Habakkuk lived and prophesied in a time with other prophets like Jeremiah and and Nahum, and he's prophesying right at the end, pretty much, of Judah's existence. So right before they get exiled over Mm -hmm. to Babylon. (coughs) And and Habakkuk is upset. If you don't know much of the Old Testament history, basically Judah is the southern part, the southern kingdom of the nation of Israel. And it was separated from the northern kingdom after King Solomon, so things were great until he he, he arrived and and the nation divided and sin entered the the country. Foreign nations came in and the Israelites married foreign women and they worshipped their gods and they made deals and partnerships with God's enemies and they became ungodly and idolatrous and immoral and proud. And foreign nations just took advantage of this, of their behaviour, of their weakness, and God used those foreign nations that could come in to discipline them and to judge His people. Listen to this description of the state of Judah and the King Manasseh. You can see this in 2 Kings 21. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. His mother's name was Hes- <coughs> Hesibar. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord following detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He he rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab the king of Israel had done. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. He practiced divination. He sought omens. He consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. People didn't listen. Manasseh had led them astray so that people did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. And there's no wonder that Habakkuk is seeing this, he's experiencing it, he's feeling it, and he cries out to God, how long must I see this? How long will it be until you come and help this situation? It's destruction and violence and strife and conflict. The law is nowhere and the righteous are therefore just abandoned. Habakkuk wanted to do what is right. But he can't, and why not? Where is God? Why isn't he having his way? What about God's reputation? What about the world? What do they think of Israel now? I don't know. I don't know how you feel about the situation of the church in the UK. Whether you think about it, whether you know much about... I don't know how you feel about the possibility of life becoming harder and harder for Christians... Pressure to compromise what we believe and then how we live from the world. I don't know how much you care about the reputation of the name of Jesus or so how much you worry about the next generation. What kind of society will my son grow up in? My grandparents often used to tell me how much things had changed in their lifetime. There's always been sin, there's always been evil, of course. But there was a general Christianness about people. And now that's no longer there. If my son decides to put his trust in the Lord Jesus, will that mean, what kind of life will that mean for him? I have to nail his colours to the mast and pay the price. Should we not want to ask God, what is he doing? To ask him to, to, to act. Should we not long to pray that God would help and bring justice to those who suffer, to ask Him to come and sort out the compromising, to raise up godly men and women, to teach truth and drive out false teachers, to pray for God to revive the church and to bring it back to holiness. Should our prayer not be with Habakkuk in verse 3, praying for God to come and save Well, what does God have to say for himself? Verse 5. Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed, God says. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. (laughs) I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. They promote their own honour. Habakkuk, we get the impression, is asking God to save, to come and act, to deliver him. But here we read that God is judging and punishing he says in verse twelve, "Lord, you have appointed these people to execute judgment. You've ordained them to punish." God says, "Look, I'm be amazed about what I'm going to do," and Habakkuk is amazed. This is God's response to His people's sin. As you read on in Habakkuk, you see that he is also confused about what is God doing, and he has more questions. And we'll worry about them next week. But God is going to do something that you would not believe even if you were told. He's going to raise up these Babylonians. Babylon would have been known to have a cook. He would have been sent shivers down his spine. He would have known that they are this ruthless and impetuous people. They were a dominant force at the time but their reputation was certainly loud and clear. Their intent was to, to take over the world. To go in with no care, with no sympathy, just sheer power and greed and arrogance. They feared no one. They were mightier than all. And nothing could stand in their way. Think of those movies we watch where there is one army that's far greater than the other army and they ride in on their horses and they just obliterate the enemy. Killing everything in their path. They crush people and they just capture and they imprison. They come to the to the castle, and it's no problem for them. They just laugh and mock. Is that all you've got, they say? They build their ramps, they pull up their ladders, they climb and scale the wall, and they just drive in and, and take over. Those that thought they were safe behind the wall are no longer. This is what these people like. And is that is that God's response? Is that what he's going to do? Is that how he's going to deal with people's sin? Really? But Judah surely should have expected it. Shouldn't Habakkuk have known that this is how God is going to react? Back in 2 Kings 21, in King Manasseh, the Lord says, I am going to bring such a disaster on Jerusalem and Judah that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. I will stretch out over Jerusalem the measuring line used against Samaria and the plumb line used against the house of Ahab. I will wipe out Jerusalem as one wipes out a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will forsake the remnants of my inheritance and give them into the hands of the enemy. It's what God had said he would do. And is it not what he said he would do right back with Moses before they'd even entered into the land? In Deuteronomy 28, we see that if they disobeyed the Lord's commands, the Lord would cause them to be defeated by their enemies. The Lord would drive you and the King you set over you to nations unknown. Deuteronomy 28, Forty-nine says this, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth like an eagle swooping down a nation whose language you will not understand a fierce looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young like an eagle swooping down Habakkuk 1 verse 8 they fly like an eagle swooping to devour Babylonians, and and here they are. God had warned them time and time again. They had plenty of time, plenty of opportunity to repent and to come back to God, but they didn't listen. It's like those of you who have children, you tell your children time and time again, don't put your fingers in the plug socket, there'll be consequences. Is this not how God should have responded? But notice, notice for a moment how Habakkuk how he responds to this shocking news, verse 12. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. Some versions have, we will never die. He's saying God is everlasting, He is sovereign, He is holy, He's pure. He is, He's made a covenant with His people. Those should last forever. Can they really be destroyed? Is there a way that sin can be punished? and get people saved? How can God both judge and save? Well, as you read through the Bible and you see history unfold, you see a pattern of how God works and how God raises up nations to judge those in sin. It happened to the Canaanites. The Israelites first went into the land. It will happen with Israel, and it will happen with Babylon in the future. God uses evil human action to judge. And we see this in great display at the cross. For their God in saving his people while judging their sin is going to use he's going to do something that we wouldn't believe if we were told. He's going to use his enemies to judge his Messiah to kill his chosen one. On the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching to all these people in Jerusalem and he says, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did among you through him. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you, (coughs) with the help of a wicked man, put him to death by nailing him To the cross. And then Peter prays in Acts 4. Indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate. Met together with the Gentiles. And the people of Israel. In this city. To conspire against your holy servant Jesus. They did what your power. And will had decided beforehand should happen. And so in order to save his people. God used his enemies. To judge to judge his son, Jesus. Jesus, who was the true Israel, one who lived a perfect life, who fulfilled everything that God's people had failed to do in the past. There he is dying at the hands of his enemies, standing in our place, bearing our sin, dying for us. So what has God done about the problem of sin? Well, he has judged it. He's judged it on the cross and all those who believe and trust in him can be saved. But think about that. How crazy is that? Paul tells the Corinthians in in chapter 1 for the Jews that's that's a stone block. It doesn't make sense. How could God kill the Messiah? How could God kill the King? For the Gentiles, for the non-Jews it's foolishness. It's weakness and failure. But for sin to be dealt with and to be judged and for people to be saved there is no other way. The cross is where judgment happens. And for those who believe in that who trust in it are saved and are part of God's people and are part of the church. And so what about the church? What about God's judgment today? Can God judge today, for those of us living post-cross. Because course, the sin of those who truly believe and trust in Christ has been paid for. It is, it is done. It's a done deal. The sin is no more. But just as God didn't sit around and let his people in the past live how they wanted to, but he acted, so too will God act when he sees his church sin. The church will never be destroyed, but it can experience discipline. I'm thinking about how God judges. Today, John Piper has a helpful article, and he outlines four different ways in which God judges. Firstly, in Romans one, we, we see that generally it's God's judgments to give over people to give people over to their natural desires, what they whatever they want. Secondly, God judges and punishes nations, as you've seen in the Old Testament, to Israel and to their neighbours. God promises a final judgment that is still to come at the end. Jesus took the judgment of the cross for all those who believe. And fifthly, not four, but five, God may judge individuals, but God may judge the church but it will only be for disciplinary purposes. And it's interesting thinking about that first one, God just giving people over to what they want because they won't repent. And God disciplining his people that are of interest for the church today. For those of you who have been here the last few weeks, Dan has been taking us through the first chapter of Revelation and we've been seeing the, the glorious vision of our Lord Jesus Christ But then in the next two chapters John is to write a letter to seven churches to encourage them for things they're doing well but also to warn them against their sin. The harm that they do in leading people astray. He warns them and in a couple of cases he he warns that he's going to remove their lampstand. The lampstand which represented the church itself. God promised that if people keep on going in sin and don't repent that the church will be closed or at least the church will no longer be associated with God How do we think about that kind of stuff these days God disciplining the church, is that new and fresh for you some Christians think that God doesn't judge and God doesn't do this sort of thing, we live post cross we live in the age of grace, we're saved by grace so it's ok, sin doesn't matter we can do what we want well, people say, it's okay, you can sin a little bit. God will forgive you. And of course, God will forgive those who truly repent. But God will not allow His church to slip and slide into apostasy. Just like He used Babylon to judge His people in Habakkuk's day, so God will use People and nation and circumstances around the church to discipline her. So, as the churches, some of the churches sort of compromise to become like the world, maybe God is just giving the church over to her desires. <clears throat> if that's the way you want to go, to turn up your back on Christ, let's see how that works out for you. As some turn from truth to follow the world, the world then puts pressure on those who want to remain faithful. And so could it be that hardship and opposition and hostility that those who seek to live faithfully to the Lord experience is discipline from the Lord? Is God perhaps disciplining to weed out those who are not truly of him? To purify and refine His true church. Could we be experiencing some sort of discipline, suffering, in order for God to save His church? Well, like Habakkuk, how do we respond? How do we pray in such circumstances? Should we pray for salvation? Should we pray for revival? Should we pray that God renews everything? Yeah, of course. Why not? Let's not stop doing what we're called to do and proclaiming the gospel and telling people of the good news. Let's not stop welcoming people into the church who are saved because they still will be saved. Let's stop. Let's not stop discipling and encouraging and building one another up. But maybe let's also pray like Habakkuk. Should we dare to pray that God would discipline his church? Should we dare to pray that he purify and refine his people to remove the ugliness and sin that's crept in? It's being hypocrites to the world around us. Should we not pray for God to act? And should we not be ready for what that might mean? Whether God brings revival? whether he brings persecution we should be ready for God to act as he is acting and as he may well act in the future because God does act for his glory, for his purposes, for his plan how will God deal with the the problem of sin will God save his church yes, he will save his church But it may mean, particularly thinking of the church in the West, it may mean that we go through discipline and we go through suffering. Question, 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 question. Come back next week.